This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Lindsay Philippus. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 124.3. I'm your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is John. Uh, this is Ed. And we are bringing you the latest comic book news and comic book reviews from the week of September 15th through September 21st. We have a total of five books to cover, uh, just a little bit of news to mention, so let's get right into comic news. As I just said, there's not really a whole lot to actually talk about. There's a couple different interviews that we have posted up on the website that if you are interested in taking a look at those. Uh, the first one, September 16th, Peter Tomasi talked about Forever Evil Arkham War. Um, he kind of delves into Bane vs. Scarecrow and how it's all going to work out in the miniseries. On September 19th, Mark Draco talks about uh, Batwoman. And in this interview... He talks about a number of things about whether or not he's going to carry on some of the same themes that have been going on inside the pages of Batwoman that J.H. Williams and W. Hayden Blackman have been doing, or whether or not he's going to carry on and do his own thing. Uh, he did mention that there's going to be plenty of characters because he referenced his Manhunter series, and uh, there in that series there's a large supporting cast. So as we can probably guess, based off of that response, we're going to see a lot more new characters popping up inside the pages of Batwoman. Um, the last one, also on September 19th, Anne Nocenti talks about the Joker's daughter and why, how, how uh, exactly... Well, we, we kind of talked about this a couple of weeks ago, about the fact that Catwoman number 25, or uh, Catwoman number 23, sold out in stores and everybody was super thrilled for the fact that it sold out and we Ed and I talked about this on the point five cast about why this could be and it has to be because of the Joker's daughter well as it turns out the all of the the initial first printing of the Joker's daughter villain special issue that's going to be in Batman the Dark Knight in this last week of September all of the initial first printing are already pre-sold which means that it's going to get a second printing the interesting thing about this is, again, it has to do with the fact that this is the Joker's daughter and not so much about the Catwoman aspect of it. Um, so she does talk about a little bit about that in the interview, talking about whether or not that's the reason why the book's selling out and how she will be dealing with Catwoman in Catwoman number 24. As I understand it, pre-sales and stuff like that come from comic stores ordering from the, I think it's Diamond, distribution um so i guess comic stores would order more if the uh the, her first appearance sold out but i also get the feeling that most of these villain months are gonna have a lot of uh double shippings and stuff especially with the motion covers and people wanting to get their hands on them so it feels like they're kind of advertising this specifically whereas like it could be said for a lot of books and a lot of characters but i don't know for sure yeah, I'm with with Joe on that. I, I believe that almost all of the 3D motion covers have sold out everywhere. Um, so I just I don't know. I'm not. I'm not that's got to be the only reason for it because that issue of Catwoman definitely wasn't uh, 
greater than the ones before it or anything. Alright, so with that, that is all the news. You can check out those interviews over on the website, but right now we're going to get straight into our comic book reviews. And the very first book we have is Batman number 23.3, The Penguin Special. Great speech, Oswald. My name is not Oswald! It's Penguin! I am not a human being! I am an animal! Batman number 23.3, The Penguin Special, written by Frank Thierry, art by Christian Deuce. Uh, the issue starts off where Penguin is watching a bunch of security cameras and describing a bunch of situations where people have legitimately won a ton of money in his casino. Uh, when we come across the Illusionists, a failed uh, magic act from Las Vegas who have been hitting casinos all over the world and and basically raking a bunch of money. Uh, Penguin sends his henchmen out to get them, um, and he tells them that they need to pay back all of the money because they're cheating. Um, after they snot off and say, listen, wasn't this guy, Emperor Penguin, just come after you and, you know, you're nobody now. What, why should we do this? So Penguin says, okay, that's fine. Please let them out. So he tells his uh, henchmen to let them out of the building. Uh, the doc is right outside and he, by himself, takes all three of these gentlemen out and murders them. He, uh, the next day we see the bodies of the three gentlemen laying on the steps of Gotham, uh, Gotham Police Headquarters. Um, their bodies just laying there and the governor of the state is in town in Gotham City and he is telling the news reporter that this is not my Gotham and I'm going to stop this from happening, and the first thing I'm going to do is go after the Iceberg Casino. Penguin uh, is watching the newscast, and his uh, henchwoman, Lark, says to him, is this going to be a problem? And he says, no, this is just merely a show that's being put on, because Carter was actually the one who stuck up for me when I was bullied in school. Uh, he then invites the governor over for dinner. Uh, as the governor is eating dinner, he explains to he explains to uh, Cobblepot that he was not actually kidding in his thing, and he's going to try to revitalize the entire area as Wayne has, uh, Bruce Wayne's been doing, or been saying that he's going to do in the last over the last couple of years. And he wants to revitalize the entire area where the Iceberg Lounge is. Uh, Penguin is kind of uh, taken aback by this, offers him some. Um, champagne and celebration for this and next thing you know uh wakey wakey the next time we see them it's in a dark room and the governor is being told by penguin to wake up the light gets switched on and as it turns out the governor is standing there in his underwear with blood all over his body and his personal assistant laying on the bed all bloody and dead uh, penguin then proceeds to tell him that uh, they have footage of him killing his um, his assistant as he was hopped up on Venom, and they can't even find her head, but they think he ate it. Um, he then proceeds to say that there's a bunch of uh, sexting um, text messages that are um, on both of their devices, proving that he had an affair with them. Um, we then, he says, the only way that this is going to stop is if you just decide to forget this entire revitalization idea, because that's the only thing that's going to work. Uh, next, we see a news conference where the governor is coming to talk about his, uh, to get rid of the Iceberg Casino. He approaches the podium, um, says, sometimes the bullies get it right, and he pulls out a gun and shoots himself. 
uh, Penguin who's watching it says, oh, this is a shame, but we don't have to worry about this, this situation happening anymore because I will always have the last word. Batman number 23.3, the Penguin special. So realistically, this, this story, it doesn't really seem to take place in the time frame of Forever Evil, uh, specifically because it's not really mentioned, um, you know, that the, the heroes are all gone or anything like that. It's just, it's a, it's just seems like it's a story at a specific point in time, somewhere after the fact of Bruce Wayne stating that he wanted to revitalize Gotham City and spend a ton of money trying to revamp certain areas of Gotham City. What did you think of the idea of this person who originally stuck up for the Penguin when he was in school, or I should say Oswald when he was in school, and then in turn decides he wants to take him down? I think it makes sense because, I mean, he didn't say that they were necessarily childhood friends. And he said, you know, you've gone too far. So it implies that there's always been a bit of leeway given to him. And then this is kind of what pushed it over the line and said, well, I've got to do something about this now. And it wasn't, it wasn't taking down in an aggressive way. It was more kind of like, I'm going to shut you down passively and do my own thing in there. I'll probably shut you down so I think, I think it kind of made sense and it was probably about time that someone did something especially in a way that uh, from the stories we've been told so far no one can prove that Penguin actually does anything so it seemed a good way to get around that and to take him down in a in a way that Penguin wouldn't be able to sort of bribe his way out of yeah I, I kind of feel the same way um, you know it's not really shown that like you said they're, they're great friends I think he's made a guy that stood up for him but it does seem like they may have had some type of relationship in the past um, that, you know, the governor would do these things. I, um, I, I mean, I'm not really I'm not sure. The other thing that I – well, I, the thing is I thought it was kind of interesting just the entire idea that the governor is actually friends with, the, the, with Oswald or not necessarily friends but acquaintances and he stuck up for him and how it's assumed that – how Penguin assumes, oh, well, this is all just a giant show for the public. I think it's interesting, all of that. I also find it a little bit weird that the governor, for some reason, is in Gotham City. Um, wherever Gotham City is legitimately located within the United States, it's never actually stated, but I think it's interesting that they have the governor pop up just for this newscast and say that this is because of the Iceberg Casino and he's going to take down the Iceberg Casino. And I just think it's a little bit interesting that the governor has plenty of time just to take time out of his schedule to come to Gotham City and look at these dead bodies and then make an announcement he's going to take down the Iceberg Casino. Um, the, the other thing I thought was kind of interesting about this story was the, the fact at the very end where when he, right before he kills himself, he says, sometimes the bullies get it right. And he's referencing the fact that the bullies were picking on Oswald and maybe the police had a bit good, you know, good idea that that this was not going to be someone who was going to be, um, you know, somebody who deserved to be picked on or should be picked on. And I think that, um, I mean, it's a weird thing to to put in there, especially in this time and age when bullying is something that people look look down on very much. So. Um, or it, I should say it's publicized a lot more than it used to be. And there's a lot of organizations out there that are specifically, uh, you know, you know, promoting the idea of that bullying is a bad idea and all of this. 
to really get the word out to kids so that people nowadays don't do horrible things. But, uh, the, the entire thing is, uh, do you think it was necessary for him just to kill himself? Or do you think that was a little bit over the top just to add dr- drama and or dramatic element to the, the ending of the story? I definitely don't think it was necessary. And it kind of, I think, took away from the issue, the fact that he did that. It's interesting that you saw that. I kind of thought the, um, the bullying line was more reference to Penguin, like saying that he was a bully. So, um, but I guess your way would make more sense. And yeah, that's definitely interesting that that got put in. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't appreciate the guy killing himself. It seemed, like you say, kind of overkill. And, uh, it, I, I think it kind of took away from what was the, what could have been fairly interesting. Yeah, I, I had kind of assumed that what we were going to have here was the governor in the back pocket of Penguin for some time, which could have made for, you know, an interesting storyline. Um, yeah, I was really surprised when he, when he killed himself. And I don't really know if that was, I, 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 maybe what they were trying to do is just keep it where the story stays contained in this one issue. So they wanted to, you know, wrap it up and, and the dust on the point you made earlier about the kind of lack of a timeline, um, may have been very difficult to continue with some threads of the story. If it happened, you know, uh, significantly in the past, a year in the past, whenever it was. So, um, yeah, but I was surprised to have it end so abruptly, but I guess I can see where they were trying to keep it, you know, self-contained. And that was really the only way to do was to have the governor killed by Penguin or, as it turned out, by himself. Yeah, and finally, the last thing I wanted to talk about was I thought it was kind of interesting and really shows the, the, the overall abilities of Penguin when he, you know, has the governor wake up, the his assistant's dead, he, or, he orchestrates this entire giant conspiracy to basically frame the governor for the murder, to have an affair, to basically ruin his life. We This kind of reminds me of some of the events of what we saw during uh, Penguin Pain and Prejudice, where he's very all about orchestrating these large overall things to absolutely destroy people's lives. And outside of Penguin Pain and Prejudice, the characters made some appearances here and there, but for the most part, he just comes across as some guy who tells people to go do his bidding, which the beginning of the issue kind of points out with those characters, those, those illusionists, uh, it kind of points out that, you know, that's what everybody's thinking that he's, that that's all he is. He's just someone who tells someone to go do his bidding. And at this point, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, this is kind of putting Penguin back in place where, you know, he is a, he is a formidable foe and someone who, you know, is definitely someone that should not be messed with. I really didn't like that aspect of it because, um, I agree that when he kind of disassembled the governor's life, that was reminiscent of the Penguin, Pain, Penguin, Pain and Prejudice miniseries. I think that's something that I, I know you did, I know. Don wasn't that keen on the series, but I think that's something that we all quite liked is the fact that Penguin isn't really physically able to fight people. It's never been portrayed that way, and at least art-wise. And that kind of the, his scheming matched the way he looks, and, and it was an interesting take on how he could have risen so high up in Gotham's underworld to the place that he is without having to try and fight anyone. And I think that made a lot of sense. So having him then uh, do some strange karate stuff at the beginning was 
kind of took away from that. So I appreciated seeing it later in the issue, but I didn't like the opening where he actually was fighting people. It didn't seem to fit the character for me, at least this most recent representation of him. Yeah, because he even says something in the book where he says it's been you know a couple years or three years or something like that since he's actually killed anyone himself. Um, and I don't know of all the uh, kind of sticky situations he's been in, including his his row with uh, Emperor Penguin and other stuff. That why he would after after keeping his hands relatively clean personally for three years, he would decide to kill some card sharks. Um, so I think that the time on that was a little weird. Um, and the setup at the end is is neat how he sets up the governor. Uh, but the problem to me is it happens, to, I mean, too quickly because we're led to believe in the story that when Penguin invites the governor over for dinner, he thinks that everything is is totally fine and they're still friends. And that when they wake up, when he wakes up with him, and, and I don't know how long he was out for, but say at worst, 12 to 24 hours probably, he's managed to plant all this evidence, the fake videos. I mean, it just seems that it's uh, – I, 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 I like the idea that he would have – you know, blackmailed the governor, but I think it needed to be a little more simple because this seemed like it was a little, um, little too high tech to be done in that, in that short period of time. You know, I have to disagree with both of you on, on obviously different situations. The, the first thing is, I think the whole point in the beginning when he takes those three guys out, he's proving that he can do the dirty work if he needs to. He doesn't, and that's why they made a point to point out that, you know, it's been three years since he's killed anybody. So he's pointing out the fact that that's not what he normally does. He's doing it because these guys snotted off and said that he's, he's nobody and he can't do anything. And then the other aspect of it is, I don't think that, uh, you know, the time frame is that, is that far fetched. It probably was about 24 hours because we would assume that it, it would be probably about the next day. Um, that he wakes back up because it's, we would assume it's evening because it's dark in the room and it's probably not the same night. So I don't think 24 hours is that big of an amount of a time to, you know, have that happen. The, the bigger question would be, why is, how come the mayor doesn't remember anything, even if he, because if he was awake and on camera getting filmed while he was hopped up on Venom, he should at least have some sort of memory of any of that. He's not going to have no memory of anything. And the last thing he's going to remember is, is sitting at dinner drinking a glass of champagne. So that, that's the only thing that I have a problem with. But I think the timeline of it, I think it works fine. I think the over complexity of the situation actually shows how much Penguin can actually be involved in it. And that's what makes it interesting. I guess I just, I, I get your point. And I think that him not doing anything for, like for ages and ages could get a bit tiring and we want to see him doing some action. I just, I didn't really like it. And I also think that considering he then kills the people he's trying to make his point to, it doesn't make any sense because he's not going to then tell everyone like, Oh yeah, I did. I can kill people. Like you should have seen it the other day. But uh, yeah. and I think, and that's one thing that I did, did cross my mind was maybe he should have let one of them go. And then, so the, the one could have went around and told everybody because yeah. realistically putting the bodies on the, the police department steps isn't going to let everyone know that, Hey, this was the penguin. So yeah. the penguin personally, I should say. So, I mean, maybe he should have let one of them go to go tell everybody about it, but all right. So Batman 23.3, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. I agree. Three out of five batterings. I am going to give it. 
two out of five batarangs. All right, so that's going to give Batman number 23.3 a total of three out of five batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Batman and Robin 23.3. I control a vast global organization, detective. Obviously, Batman's activities require certain costly implements. It was a simple matter for my people to learn which wealthy Americans were amassing what Batman might require. The one who matched my daughter's description of you was Bruce Wayne. Next time, I'll have to glue my mask on. Uh, Batman and Robin 23.3. This is the Ra's al Ghul and League of Assassins special. Uh, writer was James Tinian IV. Artist, Jeremy Hahn. Uh, this issue opens up in the year 1285 with Prince Gerhardt approaching a dark tower where a demon lord is rumored to live. Uh, he, he knocks on the door of, of the tower and is greeted by, by the servant in white who speaks English. Uh, him and his men are led deep into the castle where he says he's going to free the servant from the, uh, the demon that lives there. Um, they, they go deeper and deeper into the castle where his men are, are, are killed. And finally, he's confronted by Raish as he uh, emerges from the Lazarus pit. Uh, we then cut to uh, present day, where we see an emissary of the secret society talking to Raish about his past and offering him a place in the society. Um, Raish has the man bats kill the men that the uh, the emissary from the secret society has has brought along with them, and prepares to face him one on one in a sword fight. Uh, we then go through a series of of flashbacks, kind of showing the history of Raish through the ages uh, and him forming the the League of Assassins. We cut back and forth. Uh, between the various flashbacks to the sword fight, and then are finally given the highlights of his dealing with Batman, including uh, Talia's recent events from from Batman Inc. and, and her wearing the mask. Um, the opponent then tells Race that Batman the Justice League is dead, and now is his chance to reshape the world if he joins the uh, secret society. He formally rejects their invitation to join. Um, he does not believe that Batman is dead. He kills the emissary and then goes back to planning to tear the world apart and rebuild it again just like he always does. So I, I read this issue, and uh, the, the first thing that really came up to me was that we kind of get a, uh, a condensed Al Ghul origin story, as it's we, we flash between five or six different points in history. And do you see any major changes with, with what we're presented here and what we know of him pre-New 52? No. I, you know, looking over the small condensed version of what they have here, it really doesn't seem that much different. Obviously, they expanded certain things. They showed off some other things. But some of the stuff, even to the point where they have the scene where Roz first meets Batman, that's straight from the original Roz Ghul origin story from the 70s from Denny O'Neill. So, I mean, like, I don't really see a whole lot of changes at all. And if there is, it's, it's minor stuff that, you know, it doesn't really affect anything to begin with. Yeah, I didn't see any. I was kind of wondering if anybody else had, had saw it. Cause this really just seemed to me like we were rehashing. Basically, it was a, uh, if you didn't know who Al Ghul was, this was like the beginners. Like, here's a, here's a shortcut book you could, you could give someone. The other thing I, I was, you know, reading, thinking about how this affects modern continuity and, and the events of Forever Evil is, do you think that, that he would so blatantly not have anything to do with the secret society? I mean, couldn't they help him reshape the world kind of like he wants to? Or do you think he would turn them down that quickly? I think realistically he'd turn them down and he wouldn't even bother listening to them. Um, specifically because, as it's pointed out, he's never going to bow down to somebody else. Roz is not like that. He's been around for way too long to have some group of people, whoever it is, 
just randomly emerge and say that, you know, they're the next, or they're the best thing on the block right now. How many times has he seen people come and go as he, you know, outlasts them and out, you know, out and builds his empire even larger because he outlasts them? How many times does he see this? Plus his, I, you know, his point that he makes about, um, Batman's probably not actually dead. He's probably, you know, he is somewhere, but he's not dead. Um, he would know this better than anybody because how many times has Batman disappeared and everyone thinks he's dead and then he reappears. So, I mean, it's perfect for him to say that and have it possibly be true because he's pointing out that, you know, these people, they have this idea because they're being told this, but is it really the case? Well, Roz doesn't think so. And Roz would never bow down to any group that who who's going to sit there and go against what he thinks anyway. Yeah, I definitely think that, Rafe believes that this group is beneath him and like, yeah, all right. And like, like Dustin said, I mean, he's seen this countless times before and, and the fact that he kind of just mocks their naiveness is like, yeah, you really think he's dead. So I, I definitely think that this is in character for him. And I don't think he would even consider bowing down to anyone or, or even joining another, letting anyone else help him reshape the world because he wants to do it in his own image. And I, I think that it's definitely his characterization to to act like this. I kind of agree with you guys. Um, And that's really the central issue of the book besides the uh, kind of retelling of his origin is this, you know, secret society sword fight with a kind of nameless lackey. Um, So I, I, you know, we do get the tease here at the end that he's going to be featured in Red Hood and the Outlaws. Um, So it seems like we're going to be moving back into him being the, the person with the League of Assassins as opposed to Talia, who's kind of been the, forefront for a couple years now and this is more of a general question but are you guys excited or happy that we're going to be moving back to uh race over talia or uh what's your feelings on that the first thing i want to do is you know we've talked about in on the point five cast when we reviewed red hood and the outlaws we've talked about this numerous times where they've mentioned talia they've mentioned Roz, but they've never actually appeared in the book and here they they blatantly make a point to point out that talia is dead I mean, obviously, we know she died in Batman Incorporated, but, you know, we had our questions of whether or not some of the stuff that happened in Batman Incorporated was actually going to have fallout outside of Damien dying, was actually going to have fallout. And here, it's blatantly said, well, it, well, it's not, I shouldn't say it's blatantly said, it just, it, 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 he points out that Talia's dead, and the art shows that Talia's dead, but it's not said that your daughter's gone forever, or you, you failed your daughter, or something like that. It's just implied that she is dead based off the art and what he says. And then, the, so the the interesting thing is, am I excited? Yes, I think it'll be great to have Ra's al Ghul appear in Red Hood and the Outlaws, because not only will Red Hood and the Outlaws then be a little bit more tied to the Batman universe with the involvement of Ra's al Ghul, but also it'll give the book a little bit more substance because I think a lot of these random villains and characters that have been appearing in Red Hood and the Outlaws are characters that I don't really have any feelings for. Like, I don't despise them, but they're not, nobody that I really like either. Like, Ra's al Ghul is a character that, obviously, there's a lot of history with, and there's there's a, this is a character that has been around for a long time and has plenty of backstory and plenty of things to explore that... You know, us, the readers who aren't just popping onto the book and reading it for the first time, it'll be interesting to see this character. And, you know, the one thing I have to say after reading this is, if the idea of Villains Month is to kind of reintroduce and give the origins to 
all of the existing characters, all the existing villains that, you know, existed pre-New 52, but may not have had really substantial um, appearances since the New 52, to get the newer readers more invested in these characters, then I'm, then I'm, then I'm glad that that's the reason, because if we can start to see some of the more common villains in some of these books, because now the new set of readers that came on when the New 52 happened, they know about these characters, then there's a reason for them to use them. I'm all for it, because then finally we can get to some stories that don't involve, you know, the run of the mill, I show up for three, four issues, and then I disappear villains that we've seen in a lot of these books. Yeah, I'm not reading Red Hood and the Outlaws, but I do think that it definitely makes sense considering the events of Batman Inc. Um, that implied that Rachel's kind of bringing her back to life at least, because it is his daughter, but it kind of reasserting himself as the head of the League of Shadows or League of Assassins. And it definitely, yeah, I mean, I think that it kind of makes sense that he would kind of take that back and be like, yeah, okay, well, you, you got killed, so I guess I am in charge again. Um, I think it's interesting because we have already seen Raish and that was in Detective Comics. And I'll be interested to see where that storyline goes, if that's being put on hold so that Tinian can tell his story in Red Hood and the Outlaws. But we haven't seen that referenced in, in quite a while. I'm really, really glad that, that we're getting him back into Red Hood and the Outlaws. Um, for those of you that haven't been following it, you know that League of Assassins story that's been going on the past three or four issues when the League of Assassins is missing Talia and Raish, it's doesn't. It's just not as fun. I mean, it's just not. I mean, uh, bring him back. I'm, I think we'll, we'll hopefully finish off that storyline and let it add on some kind of proper direction. Um, so, and I'm and I'm glad to see. I mean, Talia is a cool character, but we've had such a focus on her in Batman Inc. now for a, a while, even even going back pre New Fifty Two. That I'm glad to see that if, if she's going to be dead, we're going to leave her dead for. I don't know, six months to a year before she's brought back at least and uh, get to focus uh, on her father. So that's all I got. All right. So Batman Robin number 23.3. I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five batterings. I'll give this a three out of five batterings. I'm also going to give it three out of five. All right. So it's going to give Batman Robin 23.3 a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book. Detective Comics number 23.3. Would you like to see my mask? I use it in my experiments. I'm probably not very frightening to a guy like you, but these crazies can't stand it. So when did the nut take over the nut house? They scream and they cry. Detective Comics number 23.3 featuring Scarecrow, written by Peter J. Tomasi, with art by Simon Kodransky. The issue opens with Scarecrow strolling through Mr. Freeze's territory when his associate, Hudson, runs into scene saying he's found him when he gets promptly frozen. Scarecrow informs Mr. Freeze of the upcoming war with Blackgate, making note that he went to Freeze first and the two talk for a moment about the society and their own psychosis before they move on. Once Hudson has thawed, Scarecrow visits the Riddler in the Gotham Public Library. Once again, Scarecrow informs Riddler about the upcoming war and says that he went there first. But happy with his territory, Riddler appears quite indifferent and decides to remain neutral. After this, Poison Ivy is the next to be visited, but upon entering her territory, Scarecrow and Hudson are attacked by a venomized Blackgate guard, but Killer Croc bursts out of the sewers and takes him down. 
Scarecrow tells Croc that he came to see him first and informs him that he was, uh, and informs him of the war, but apparently Croc has made a deal with someone and now his territory is below Gotham, but he'll be ready to take on anyone who tries to attack. We then find out who he made a deal with as Poison Ivy appears. Through her conversation, we find out that Scarecrow believes Bane is behind the Blackgate's threats. Whilst appreciative of the territory she's been given by the society, Poison Ivy admits that she has little power because of the lack of sunlight, but Scarecrow informs her of a generator under Blackgate that is being used to keep the Talons imprisoned, and with this, Ivy seems eager to join Scarecrow. The issue ends with Scarecrow helping Hudson with his, uh, with his fear of height by dropping off a skyscraper. As Scarecrow stares over Gotham with all of his territories marked, he states that when the war is over, Gotham will be his. So I guess the first thing is, I mean, this seems to, more than any of the ones we've read so far, really tie into what's going on. And I, so I'm guessing this is really relating to that Arkham War, which Tomasi is also writing. This is, does this make you excited for that, this lead-in with, you really get to see all of the territories throughout Gotham, especially at that last page when you can see who's marked their own territory in Gotham. So I, I think it's, I, I like it so far because it's hearkening to me back to No Man's Land where the villains have different territories in Gotham City and, you know, they have certain areas. The one thing that I did have a problem with was I noticed that one of the buildings was marked with the picture or marked with an oversized going. ventriloquist. <laughs> and honestly, I don't really see how that chick has anything, like why she should have an area of Gotham that she has cordoned off, number one. How any of these other villains are going to be able to compete with her because of her overabundance of, uh, her overabundance of, of powers that nobody else has. But I mean, like overall, I think it, I'm really looking forward to it. The biggest question that I have based off of what we read here, is so as it was shown in even going back to the Two-Face issue that we saw the first week of the month, um, Scarecrow comes to Two-Face and offers him a spot on the Secret Society, and then now Scarecrow's going all over the place trying to recruit people for the Secret Society. But here's the one catch that I'm not really understanding. At the end of the last issue of Talon, which was last month in August... I believe it was issue 11, I want to say. Um, issue 11 of Talon, at the very end, somebody approaches Bane and says, I think you should disassociate yourself from this grandmaster, uh, who you, this, this former grandmaster of the Court of Owls, Sebastian Clark. And instead, I think you should come with me because I'm from the Secret Society. I think that. This, I think the last, what we've seen before is Scarecrow, um, because he's been a member of the Secret Society since Justice League of America, and that's been him recruiting people. I think this is more him recruiting people to fight with him against, uh, Bane in this, in this, um, Arkham War. And that's why he says at the end, with all these villains by my side, Gotham will be mine, I believe. Yeah, but isn't but thing, Bane part of the Secret it, Society? Right, I mean that's that's what I'm getting at. Like the thing at the end of Talon implies that someone's trying to recruit Bane. I mean, I before obviously this all happened, Bane was throughout the the last probably six issues of Talon. Bane has been setting his sights on Gotham City to go after Gotham City, bring this giant gaggle of uh, soldiers to Gotham City to basically own Gotham City. That's what's been shown throughout the last six issues of Talon. So that's fine. But then at the end, 
someone approaches at the last issue right before Forever Evil and Villains One starts, the last issue of Talon has somebody walking up to Bane and saying, I think you should get away from the uh, Sebastian Clark character. Bane supposedly agrees with him because he kills Sebastian Clark right then and there and says, tell me about this society, leading us to believe that it is the secret society. So why would the secret society be funny amongst themselves? I don't really know. Maybe Bane doesn't go side with the, the them, and instead it's Scarecrow and all the villains versus Bane and his army, which would be fine. But then the 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 initial promotional art that was released for the Arkham War um, miniseries has Bane siding with a number of villains. So I guess it's not so much that I, I'm just trying to understand how this is tying into what's what's already happened with uh, Talon and how Talon's kind of been leading to the Arkham War anyway. I agree it's a little confusing, um, especially as there are a couple of mentions to the Secret Society, but this, I might be wrong, but it seems that this is kind of outside of that, because the Secret Society thing was relating to um, them siding with the crime syndicate and and joining them to take down the Justice League. And I think this is more, right, well, now that the Justice League and Batman is gone, who's going to own Gotham? And I think that this is uh, Scarecrow really wanting to own Gotham himself, going and trying to recruit these villains as allies and stuff. And some of them, you know, like Poison Ivy seemed pretty interested, whereas whereas Riddler seemed to not care so much. And I guess that that's where some people could side with Bane, where they might agree with him more. Some people remain neutral. Some people side with Scarecrow. I, I think that this is less to do with the crime syndicate and and the, 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 the society of crime and stuff like that. I think this is more just relating to... Uh, Peter Tomasi and to Peter Tomasi and his um, uh, Arkham War storyline. This really does feel like a preview to Arkham War. I mean, we have a lot of the other books, and we've seen everything from origin stories to, you know, like the one-off stories, like we had with Riddler last week. Um, but this is the first one that that feels like that it acknowledges the fact that that Arkham War is coming, and this kind of sets it up. Uh, and from that vein, I, I agree with Dustin on a few of the um, of, of the continuity of – I'm not really sure how this is going to work with, with Bane and stuff like that. But um, I do like the idea that we're going to have some kind of war between uh, the supervillains and Blackgate. And again, I'm not 100 percent sure how it's all going to wind up. But but this does give a very good you know prequel feeling to a, a, a big event in the Batman universe. Um, and I do like that last scene overlooking the city, although – the ventriloquist one was a bit shocking to me as well, but no, I, I like this. I think this feels like a real prequel and does build up some sense of excitement for Arkham War. I don't really have anything else specifically other than I really enjoyed uh, Scarecrow going around and actually analyzing the other villains and talking about them. It, it kind of humanizes them when they talk about each other and, and say like, Oh yeah, that guy is a bit of a jerk and like, Oh Riddler again. I don't want to deal with him, but I have to, I kind of like that. And it, like I said, it kind of grounds them a bit and makes them not necessarily relatable, but kind of associates them more and makes them all seem a bit more human rather than these, you know, super like insane people who are all just bent on killing Batman. It kind of like relates them all to each other a bit more, which I appreciate. The 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 one thing that I thought is kind of interesting was the when you like you mentioned, he he was actually analyzing them 
you know, outside of just humanizing them and telling us who's a jerk and who's not, he, he actually is analyzing them and talking about, you know, doing all of the cycle babble is, I think, I can't remember which one it was, but somebody pointed out that he was just speaking all the cycle babble that had to do with, you know, the fact that he is, uh, you know, he is a psychiatrist or a, a psych, he, he is someone who's in that field. So that's what he does. He uses, you know, he analyzes people using that method. And I thought that was kind of interesting because really we haven't really seen that. Most of the time, Scarecrow pops, pops up very briefly, squirts somebody, squirts some gas in somebody's face and then cackles while they, you know, are in terror. But I, I think this was interesting because it also, it just makes the character a little bit more substantial instead of just being this guy who uses gas on everybody. I say it makes him more than just a gimmick. He seems competent for the first time in a long time. I mean, I know that might be the wrong word, but he seems like he's a credible threat again. Like, he's actually holding it together. He's not like Dustin said, laughing and cackling and ends up gassing himself and crying about his dad. And, you know, um, yeah, I mean, he seems like a competent threat. And, and by the end of the issue, you think he's really holding it together enough that maybe he does have some kind of plan that is feasible other than gassing the whole city. All right, so Detective Comics number 23.3, I'm going to give a total of four out of five batterings. I'll give this a three and a half out of five batterings. I will also give this four out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Detective Comics number 23.3 a total of four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman the Dark Knight number 23.3. Great thing about being a shapeshifter. I can blend in with the crowd outside, make my getaway, and rip off some other joint. Batman the Dark Knight, number 23.3, the Clayface special, written by John Lehman, art by Cliff Richards. The issue starts off where we get, uh, we see Clayface going through a sewer with a bunch of henchmen on their way to a job to knock off a bank. Uh, we then get a little bit of a back history of Basil Carlo, uh, as he was a movie star and he was making tons of money and how he eventually punched the director in the face, which got him fired and sent his life into a spiral. He became Clayface to get revenge on those who destroyed his life. Uh, we cut back to the sewer, where he kills some of the henchmen for calling him a dummy because he's convinced that he's not an idiot. As he assumes one of the identities of the henchmen, he emerges from the sewer only to find the streets of Gotham in basically riots happening all over the place, cars on fire, so forth and so on. He's pretty happy when he finds out that the Just League is supposedly gone, so he decides to head over to one of his, uh, one over, heads over to one of his bars as he, that he normally regulars at. As he gets there, a number of other villains are there, including White Rabbit, who is in the background, um, and he is told from somebody that the Secret Society is recruiting a number of villains. He wants to know how to get recruited, um, and someone appears on the TV screen and says that they are the resistance and they are, that they are going to fight against all of the people who have been, uh, who have been murdering and declared themselves the leaders of the, the people now. Someone throws a bottle at the TV screen. Clayface gets pissed that, uh, that happened. Turns out it's the great white who, uh, who threw the bottle and he's explaining that the whole point is that, uh, you know, there's nobody there. They're, they're only going to, there's no resistance. There's only a few people who are trying to start something. And Clayface says, well, I think I'm going to get myself noticed by going and taking these guys out. Punches great white in the face. 
leaves the bar and heads to this camp. As he approaches, it just looks like, as they suspected, there's only a couple of people that are held up. Um, Clayface reveals himself, and um, they start attacking him, but as it turns out, uh, they're no match for Clayface. Clayface goes into the underground bunker to talk to the man in charge and explains that, um, you know, the... You're making a big mistake. Uh, this is not happening. I'm not letting it happen. You're not going to try to take back Gotham. After they said, no, you're making a big mistake. You're an idiot. Uh, Clayface goes nuts again because they called him brainless. Um, uh, then all of a sudden someone says, someone appears on the, cr- the, the screen and says, uh, what are you doing? And he says, are you the secret society? I, I've taken back the, I've stopped the, the, the resistance. You're an idiot. This was organized by us. We, the, the man on the screen says, this organized resistance was organized by us. You screwed this up. This was our way of trying to get the remaining superheroes that are left to weed them out and come to us. That way we could take them out too. Uh, Clayface gets really upset by this, starts basically destroying everything left and right. And in the process, something happens where the bunker self-destruct actually occurs, and it blows up. Back at the bar, we found out Clayface made it out alive, but uh, he stinks like burnt charcoal, according to Dollhouse. And then we see Clayface talking to some other people, and someone says, uh, Hey, I've got a job, but I need some muscle. And then, and uh, Clayface says, Sounds good. I, I, I like a good plan. Um, and... You know, he, he said, he decides that, and right now, I start coming up with a plan of my own, an ambitious one that would put me back on top once again. Alright, Batman the Dark Knight number 23.3, the Clayface special. So this was kind of interesting because we get a little bit of history about Basil Carlo, nothing that we didn't already know. Um, they don't really go into too much depth as to how he actually becomes Clayface here in this story. So, there's not that that much. It really just talks about how, really, the, it came across to me as if the entire point of this story was to get across that, you know, he might not be the smartest person ever, but he doesn't want to be called an idiot. Um, despite the fact that he tries to have these great plans, they always seem to end up backfiring on him, as shown here. So I wanted to get your guys' idea of this idea of how Clayface was portrayed here compared to... Um, how he was portrayed in more recently in Detective Comics and also in the the short story that Scott Snyder did in the pages of Batman. He does, you know, if, if you look at Clayface here as opposed to his, his previous uh, two appearances in the, in the Dark Knight and in Batman, um, this almost seems to be, a, and I'm sure I'm going to get some disagreement, but a de-evolution to me. Um, he seems to be the, the hair trigger thing that the, the people calling him stupid, him totally blowing up. Um, this almost seems like he's becoming more childish. Um, I mean, he's always been kind of a, you know, not the brightest guy in the world type deal, but I don't know. For some reason, this issue just seemed like he was incapable of do, of, of doing any type of long-term planning at all and would, would screw up something no matter what it was at the, at the drop of a hat. Um, I, I actually prefer his his appearance in, in Scott Snyder's run over the Dark Knight one, um, but I don't know. To me, this 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 seems opposite, and, and I don't understand why the Secret Society are so how bent on not allowing him in. I mean, if you look at some of the people in Forever Evil that they let in, I mean, 
he's not by any stretch the worst uh, out of the group um, as far as having temper problems. So, yeah, I'm not sure, but this, this seems to be a more childish version of Clayface to, to me. The, the interesting thing is, you know, it might be a de-evolution of the character, but I don't mind that because it, I thought that, honestly, the way Clayface was portrayed in Scott Snyder's story was he was way too smart. He was doing things that... Let's, I'll just put it this way. I didn't really like the, I, the the way he was portrayed in Scott Snyder's run. I thought he was way too smart. I thought he was, like, over-intelligent. He was planning these masterful plans and doing all of this. And honestly, if he's just a washed-up actor, he's not going to be coming up with that kind of stuff. So, in my mind, this is the way he would be. He's a guy who, you know, he is Clayface because he was hell-bent on revenge for destroying the people who, you know, screwed his, his entire career up. That's the type of person who is not going to, you know, think things through. You know, he basically created, you know, he made himself into Clayface. Why? Because he was mad because somebody got him fired from a job. I mean, he's not the brightest, like, like Ed said, he's not the brightest guy in the, in the, uh, in, in the world. So he's not going to have these amazingly sought through plans like we saw in Scott Snyder's run. Um, honestly, there's other Clayface is not Basil Carlo who probably could have been a little bit smarter and more, you know, could think through plans a little bit more, but Basil Carlo, for everything we know from the character pre new 52, he was never really the smartest crane. He was always kind of like just the brute force and that's what he was there for. So the other thing I want to talk about is, you know, it's kind of interesting that despite the fact that Gotham City, there's no villain or there's uh, there's no heroes. I I did find it interesting that for whatever reason, a number of these villains end up going to a bar. Now we've seen this in other books, not so much in the Batman books, but we've seen this in some other books uh, throughout the last couple of years, where villains they they all go to a specific bar. Uh, this is more prevalent in the pages of Flash. But what did you think of, well, two things. One, what did you think of the fact that they were all there? And two, the selection of villains that they chose to use. A lot of the characters they chose to use are uh, very, very rather new characters with the White Rabbit and Dollface or Dollhouse. And then we have other characters who are so low on the totem pole like the Great White uh, and Zebra Man that it's almost laughable that, you know, these characters are even in the same place talking about or even have remotely possibly heard about the fact that the Secret Society is recruiting people. I think it kind of makes sense that it all kind of join, um, because it kind of implies that they think of it more as like a, not necessarily a club, but like the, the lower end people who are never going to be a serious threat. And like, they're, they're, they're let out of Arkham and stuff, or they, there's nothing to fear. There's no Batman to hunt them down and stuff. So it kind of makes sense. They're just like, oh, well, what should we, what should we do? There's nothing to like hide from. But then equally, there's nothing, there's no point in going out and doing any crime because, you know, there's nothing to stop us. There's no chase. There's no fun in that. So like, cause otherwise people are going to steal stuff. They're going to steal stuff. And they're not going to care about wearing a costume. So these people obviously do it for some kind of attention. And like the fact that there's no one to pay attention to them kind of, I think that would make sense of the, that group of people kind of join and, and meet up and, uh, and why the, like more the higher tier villains wouldn't. It, it does really seem like a flash story. I mean, we, you know, the rogues are always hanging out in a bar together. Um, 
my, my thing is what I'd be curious about was, is this bar one that's kind of sprung up since the uh, Justice League and Batman have, have all disappeared due to the events in Forever Evil? Or is this bar kind of always been there and just something we've never seen before? Because, like you said, the, the collection of talent in this room is pretty uninspiring. Um, I mean, you got the White Rabbit. I mean, it's just these really aren't super credible threats. The White Rabbit might be. I don't really if we ever figure out what happened with her in Dark Knight under the original David Finch slightly confusing run uh, that we started out with there. Um, but I like the concept of these lower tier villains kind of hanging out together because the only way they're really going to have form a credible threat when you have the likes of Riddler and, and Joker penguin, you know, controlling large areas of the city is if they kind of team up three or four of, of them together. So I, I actually thought, thought that was the one part of this book that I really enjoyed was the little bar scenes. Uh, and it, it kind of makes you feel too that, you know, Clayface, this is who Clayface is associate, associating with. He's not, hanging out with Riddler or Poison Ivy. I mean, it really seems that the other, quote-unquote, major villains of Gotham have relegated him to uh, to lower tier, to banished him from the from the higher-ups, because he is such a knucklehead. All right, so Batman the Dark Knight, number 23.3. I'm going to give a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. 3 out of 5 batterings. I give it 3 out of 5 as well. All right, so that's going to give Batman the Dark Knight, number 23.3, a total of 3 out of five better ranks. Let's move into our last book, Teen Titans, number 23.2. Hurry, young Titans. Your time is running out. Actually, we just went into overtime. Robin, welcome. I've been expecting you for some time. Teen Titans, 23.2, Deathstroke. Writer, Corey May and Duma Winscombe. Artist, Morat. Angel Unezidi, and Robson Roca. Um, this story opens up with Death Blow and Deathstroke running to each other um, on the same job. Uh, Deathstroke eventually gets the upper hand, and as he sits down, he, or lays down, he fires the kill shot, and he thinks about how much can change in the quarter of a second. Uh, we then see a flashback to Bosnia uh, before Deathstroke's quote-unquote enhancement when he was ordered to blow up a children's hospital um, as part of the mission. Uh, after the mission, we see where he resigns and quits his, his government work with Team 7 and goes out on his own. We then see the birth of his son, Grant, and the fact that he eventually becomes Slade's partner, as well as the only person on the planet that he that he really trusted. We see kind of Grant growing up, and then in the future, when he's also a, an operative or a, an assassin, he, we see him on a mission uh, with, with Slade. But the mission goes terribly wrong. Uh, this is where Grant gets killed, and we see Slade lose his eye. Uh, he knows that only one person on the planet knew where they were, and we see him track down and, and kill the person that he, he views as responsible for the death of his son and the loss of his eye. Uh, we then cut to present day, and we see Slade coming home in the present, and he's greeted by his daughter. And we see Slade that he knows the only one thing will be able to keep his daughter safe when he is gone, and that is money. And that is why he kills her money, to protect his daughter. So this is... um. A, you know, a very similar to, to, to the Ra's al Ghul story that we talked about earlier. This is a uh, a wrap-up origin that kind of goes – gives you all the, uh, the, the the highlights that you, you may want. Um, but we see that Deathstroke's current motivation for killing for money is to protect his daughter at all costs. Do you guys think that works as a motivator for Deathstroke? He's a family man just trying to protect his family? I'll, I'll be the first to say I didn't really read Deathstroke when they actually had the series, so I don't know how much of that – you know, 
holds true to what they're showing here. Um, we get the little bit of the history of, you know, the origin of Deathstroke and how he lost his eye and, you know, why he does what he does. Is it because he's a family man? I, I don't know. I think the big thing is he doesn't want anything to happen to his daughter because he let, he thinks he let something happen to his son. So the, he's trying to make up, you know, for being, from that one mistake by making sure that his daughter has everything. Um, we also have no idea what time frame this takes place in because, um, as we know, his daughter is Rose Wilson, who eventually becomes Ravager. Um, so it, it's, it's impossible to know for sure what the overall idea of when this takes place. Of, of course, this is another one of those books where we don't know for sure if it actually takes place during this in this this current time frame um but i think that uh for the most part you know there's i i don't really have any issues with him being a family man and him being portrayed as that because really he's always been he's the mercenary that's what he is he's paid you know he'll he he takes money from the highest bidder and that's what he is sometimes it's on the good side sometimes it's on the bad side that's how the majority of the characters always been portrayed so I think, you know, if it's, you know, if that's the reason because he's trying to keep the money to his family, then sure, I'm fine with that. I'm not at all familiar with Deathstroke other than the old appearance and stuff. So it, this was all kind of new to me and it was interesting enough. Um, I, I believe that because of the, the short-lived series at the beginning of the New 52 that he was kind of being portrayed more as an anti-villain. Than a, or anti-hero rather than a, a villain, but so that would possibly tie into this kind of sentimental side. But uh, I, I, yeah, I didn't really take issue with it. It didn't seem like it was out of character to me. But then, like I said, I'm not familiar with the character in the first place. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with everyone for the most part. I again, you know, we've got. I don't really read Death. I never. I didn't read Deathstrokes. Um, I think I read a couple issues when it crossed over with uh, Teen Titans once, but I, I didn't really follow Deathstroke in the New Fifty Two either. Um, this seems to be a pretty basic introduction, and I'm assuming since it's part of the uh, the Teen Titans brand here that we're going to see him uh, come up more in, in Teen Titans. But then I, I don't know if you – I know uh, some of you aren't reading Red Hood, but I remember he was teased in Red Hood five or yeah. six months ago and never bothered to yeah, show it up. Was like, I think it was like February or March that he was originally teased. It was that same issue that they also teased Hugo Strange. And then he just, he, we haven't seen him since then in the, in the issue. So I guess, you know, this story was very simple. So I didn't really have much on that. My, my question was, we see him teased here in Teen Titans. We know he was supposed to be, I'm assuming, in Red Hood. Where do you see kind of the future of the Deathstroke character going in DC now that he is titleless on his own? Was that before the creator change, though? Uh, he was teased in Red Hood. Yes, yeah. he was teased before Tinian took over the book. Um but I mean, you know, I honestly think that if Deathstroke would make more sense to appear in the pages of Teen Titans than he would Red Hood and the Outlaws. Um, but as far as whether or not the character is going to be, you know, popping up in 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 the books, I, I don't know if he's going to pop up. I don't really don't have a necessity for him to pop up. Um, he had his, his, his own series that didn't do very well, regardless of the reasons behind it, it didn't do very well. 
And outside of that, I think that, you know, the Teen Titans would be the place to have him pop up if he was going to pop up. So if he, if he does great, as long as it works with the story, um, if it somehow, you know, involves his daughter, well, that'll just add to some of the stories that, you know, happened possibly, you know, before the new 52. So she has appeared in the books since the new 52 as part of the, the, she was part of, uh, handle, she was the, she handled Superboy. She was part of the organization Nowhere. So that, that was before I started reading the book, but she's already appeared in the book. So, I mean, if she pops up as part of, you know, somehow getting back involved with Superboy and getting involved with the Teen Titans, then her dad would be a perfect place for her to show up. All right. So Teen Titans number 23.2. I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. I'll give this two and a half. Um, I know that there are lots of flashbacks and stuff, but having two writers and three artists leads to a pretty disjointed book. Yeah, I agree with Joe. It's just it's too many people trying to write a page of a, of a comic. I give it two out of five. All right, so that's going to give Teen Titans number 23.2 a total of two and a half out of five batterings. That is all of our comic book reviews. Let's get straight into our listener Q&As. And we only have one listener Q&A to go over uh, from the last episode. Alex says, great episode, guys. I agree what you all have been saying about the villains. Power boosts do not equal more interesting characters. And it really makes no sense to do that, especially since one of the reasons why people gravitate towards Batman is the lack of powers and because of being much more grounded. They're now just a bunch of super-powered psychopaths with mommy-daddy issues and martial art training. While I'm enjoying Villains Month, but... Besides Riddler, I haven't found any of the Batman villain issues that impressive. They kind of remind me of an R-rated version of the Batman show, which people hated. At least, that's what I thought when I read the Penguin issue. I agree with all of your ratings. I'm so disappointed in hearing the news about Dan DiDio. If they have that mentality, I don't even want to bother with romantic relationships because they're worthless to me. Even if characters remain unmarried for a hundred years or never get married, you're invested in the characters' relationships because you're watching it build to something. Unless, of course, that's part of their character, whether they have just, they just have feelings or are opposed to marriage or relationship naturally falls apart. Spider-Man used to be my second favorite character, and once they set that precedent for him and destroyed one of the most perfect relationships ever, I can't enjoy that character past that moment because it's no longer that character no matter how well it's written. That's why I enjoy reading Spider-Man for the first time because it's no longer Peter Parker. If it's like what Dustin is saying about the Dark Knight having an influence on this, they're doing the exact same thing with Nolan's Batman, taking only certain aspects of the character. That's no longer the character, but the caricature. All the aspects is what makes the character. With uh, Although the Dark Knight was dark, Bruce was never depressing. He cracked a lot of genuine jokes as Bruce throughout the whole trilogy. One of my favorites was when he was talking to Alfred about how many people are dying because of the Joker and he has to give up Batman, and then seamlessly switches to him saying, Accomplice, I'm going to tell them the whole thing was your idea. Such a shame. It's not fair to the writers or the readers. Don't worry. Be sad indeed. Okay, so first off, uh, going back to the, your first comment, Alex, about some of the villains. So this, this month, or th- I should say this week, for the most part, the, there wasn't a whole lot of power boost, which I was happy to see that there wasn't a whole lot of power boost amongst these characters. They didn't really enhance any of them. And if anything, some of these characters were a little bit more 
grounded. Clayface was a little bit more grounded. He's not this super ridiculously smart character that we saw in Scott Snyder's run. He's more of just the dumb brute force and the muscle. That's what he's, that's what they reduced him to now, which I'm okay with. Uh, Scarecrow, as I said earlier, you know, they made him more intelligent. They, they're, they're using some of his psychobabble to kind of enhance the character and not just be this pathetic person who uses gas all the time. Um, Penguin, it's argued, it can be argued either way. I, I like the fact that he set it all up, um, or set up the, the governor in this issue. Roz, nothing really happens with him outside of anything that's been happening. And Deathstroke, he's outside of the Batman universe for the most part. And we really just see the origin, his origin in this issue. So, I mean, overall, I think this week was actually a pretty decent week overall when you can, when you consider all of the books compared to some of the previous weeks. Um, Last last time, or last episode, in the point two episode, Riddler was one of the characters that really didn't have a whole lot of power boosts other than just having this hell, being hell-bent on revenge. But then going back to the first week with the characters, there really wasn't a whole lot of problems except for the Ventriloquist and Poison Ivy having a little bit uh, outside the box of what they've seen, and then Jack of Napes with uh, Joker and Two-Face just being Two-Face, so... I think overall, all of the books this week were done pretty well as far as not really over-accentuating the characters. I agree. I don't think there was anything, uh, no one was boosted too much, but I also agree that it's definitely a a problem, especially recently where everyone's got to be overpowered and and to be considered a a really serious threat on their own when sometimes it's, it's fun when a a villain, you know, is just only can only do so much, and Batman can take them down easily. And it's kind of how they get past that, and and interesting storylines are made that way. But uh, I, I agree, nothing was too gratuitous in this in this week. Yeah, I mean, this week wasn't bad. Um, in fact, I, I you know, I enjoyed I enjoy some of the characters being changed from time to time. Like I, I do enjoy the more intelligent Clayface because I think it makes for a better battle person with Batman. But yeah, I think this week and, and Villains Month overall has actually been much better, except you know, there's, there is the one, there's a couple issues there and here and there, but I think overall this month they've done a good job with staying relatively true to the majority of the characters in the book. So, although I agree that that's a, an overall problem in comics is that all of a sudden people are becoming way, way, way overpowered. Um, I think they've done pretty well with Villains Month. Right, and then getting to your second comment about the, the news that Dan DiDio said about Basically, the Bat family can't have happy personal lives. I, I, I just have this real small thought on this. Um, cause we, we already already discussed this at length last episode. And I, as you probably heard during the outtakes of the last episode as well, we are probably going to end up doing a, uh, an aftercast about this entire situation sometime next month. So the, the, the one thing I just want to point out is, Basically, all of the characters from the Batman universe were somewhere rated right around PG-13 if you compare it to movies, pre-New 52. And then with the New 52, everything had to get taken up to the R rating. That's why we see so much violence. That's why we see so much blood. That's why, I mean, not that I, not that I had a problem with any of the books that came out this week, but there was multiple books that had characters losing their heads. Why? I don't know. It's not really a necessity. It didn't necessarily harm any of these stories, but like it's just proving that everything has got to be more over the top violent. 
than it was pre New 52. And I don't know the reason, but everything has gone from PG 13 to, to R rated with the New 52. Everything has to be, you know, more gritty, more dark. It's like Frank Miller came in and took over DC. Some of it's gone NC 17, man. I mean, some of it's just like right past R onto, onto the worst. I mean, it's, it's, it's ludicrous, and, and it's and some of it's very casual, which I don't really like. Like the Harley Quinn issue last week with the her killing several hundred children just to for the hell of it. And yeah, but I agree. I mean, the way you make an adult comic isn't to have someone standing there with holding someone's decapitated head. It's to write a a story that works on several different levels with good characterization. But that's just my thought. Yeah, I, I guess I'll save most of my stuff for the aftercast then. But I mean, was the Dandelion comment? Um, pointed specifically at the Bat family. I thought it was kind of a, a broad generalization that any comic character w- shouldn't have a relationship because he shouldn't be caring about, you know, his own love life, but saving others or something. The initial comment was in relation to Batwoman. Then he turned it to all superheroes, but then he specifically said specifically towards the Bat family, these characters cannot have happy personal lives. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like I said, I'll save most of it, but that's, ridiculous um batman fair enough he he probably shouldn't and we get fairly irritated when those uh come and go girlfriends of his do turn up natalia most recently um but for some of those other characters like dick racing and things like that that's that's uh that's, yeah that's wrong <laughs> all right so if you have comments that you'd like to have read here on the podcast um be sure to send us those at podcast at thebamuniverse.net or leave your comments in the comment section below the episode. Uh, we do have an additional uh, listener response, but we're going to hold that one until the first set of books from October because it deals with a lot of the main books and not so much about the villains month. So we'll, so that one is on hold. So with that, that is pretty much everything for this episode. I want to remind everybody to head over to the website for all the latest news and editorials related to movies, TV, merchandise, video games, and general news, and of course the comics as well. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news and videos, as well as join our Facebook group to chat with other Bat fans about everything happening within the Batman universe. Also, you can leave us reviews on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. You can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. And as I have mentioned in the last couple episodes, and I will continue to mention it, uh, we are still looking for more people to review comic books. Um, as of right now, we have a majority of the digital first books uh, covered. Uh, Batman Beyond is still open as of right now. For We're still looking for someone to review that book. But in addition to that, there's all of the main books and the second tier of books, the .5 cast books that we review here on the Comic Cast that we are still looking for people to review on a regular basis. So if you are interested in reviewing for us, I, I would suggest that you send us an email at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net, specifically telling us what books that you would be interested in reviewing. Uh, keep in mind that uh, we are looking for people to review these books within a two-day time frame of when the book to get, does get released. So you would have to be getting your books the day that the book actually releases or the day after, as we would be looking to have your reviews posted up before the weekend so that we can include your review in our ratings when we record the podcast. So if you're interested, send us an email, podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net, with your list of books that you are interested in in reviewing, as well as... Uh, 
either a link to a personal blog where you have already posted a review or a sample of a review of one of the current books that are out right now. So with that, that's everything. This is Dustin. This is Jai. This is Ed. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next week. good story you know i said ages ago that i was working on like a small we want you poster type thing um that's drawn and i was coloring it on my ipod because i've got a little app where i can like color stuff so i was doing that and it was nearly done and then i was walking through london the other day um went to change a song on my ipod and i felt the tug on my earphone as it fell out of my pocket heard a clink and a splash and everyone around me just went <gasps> like that looked down into a drain and just saw this bubble as my ipod touch disappeared down the sewer <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> so um killer crocs got that now and uh i am ipod touchless so i've got to order another one but uh, I'll, I'll probably end up just like painting or something because it's taking too long so it, you didn't just drop it, and it broke. It went into the sewer. Yeah, I, it was it was amazing. I just stood over it and just looked at it bubble away and like say goodbye, and I just went wow. And uh, yeah, everyone. I mean, I think everyone was like because it was right outside an Apple store as well. So I'm sure everyone thought I was just like skipping just along with yeah. my new product. <laughs> and then <laughs> people were like, oh, you you're gonna try and rescue it? And then it was like you know it was two meters down, sinking in. I don't know what with like, and the grate was stuck fast. So there was no, I had to say goodbye and just walk off. That's incredibly <sighs> bad luck, man. <laughs> I know. It was amazing. I didn't even see what happened. It's just everyone told me with their <laughs> gasp. <sighs> We're laughing at your misfortune, but it is funny. No one was, I was surprised. No one laughed, at least not to my face. I'm sure they were pissing themselves <laughs> as they walked along. And what an idiot. But no, everyone was just like, Oh, oh no, what are you going to do? And it's like, it's too late now. Have a nice day.